Monday morning, I get a call at 11 a.m. from one of my colleagues who's also a, a merchant. And he said to me, Debbie, you know, I met with a bunch of Yemeni bodega owners yesterday. Everybody's devastated. Everyone has a story. And, um, and it, it, the conversation was they want to do a strike. I said to him, my God, that's a brilliant idea. But can you actually, can you really make a dent in this? And he said, well, we could try. I said, you know, from what I understand, there are about three to 5,000 bodega, Yemeni bodegas across the five boroughs. Can you, can you get 1,000 to commit to closing? Hello, welcome to The Resistors, a podcast where we talk to all the people trying to save us from Donald Trump. I'm your host, Chris Faith. On today's show, we talk with Dr. Debbie Almentasser. Just a few days after the Trump administration's Muslim ban, on February 2nd, more than 1,000 Yemeni bodega store owners, many of whom were directly impacted by the ban, closed their doors and headed to the park in front of Brooklyn's Borough Hall. There they were met by thousands of others to protest the ban. The Yemeni bodega strike was organized by a small group of people, including Dr. Almantasser. She's the founding and former principal of the Khalil Gibran International Academy, a 25-year veteran of the New York City public school system, where she taught special ed and served as a diversity advisor, founder of the Bridging Cultures Group, and board president of the Muslim Community Network. Dr. Amantasser, welcome to The Resistors, and first and foremost, happy Ramadan. Thank you so much, Chris. I'm really delighted to, to be here with you today. People around the world were shocked when the Muslim ban was issued in form of Trump's executive order. But the bodega strike and how quickly it happened showed how close it hit to home here in New York's Yemeni community. Can you describe that impact? Absolutely. The impact, Chris, um, was beyond belief. Yemen right now is a war-torn country for the last several years. And we have family members who are fleeing um, by the dozens, leaving Yemen and going to Djibouti, to Jordan, uh, to neighboring countries just to flee from uh, war. And their family members here in the United States have been petitioning for them, some of them just needing a visa um, or, you know, the final interview to get that visa. And so people for months were stranded in, you know, different parts of the uh, Middle East waiting to arrive. And so when the Muslim ban um, was announced, everybody was just terrified of the fact that their husband or their wife or their daughter or son um, we're no longer going to be able to come to the United States and really give, making it very difficult for them. One, they were hoping to join their family members here in the United States and now having to know that you might not be able to come because of the Muslim ban, being stuck in Djibouti, which was not something that was an option, um, or in Jordan or any of the neighboring countries that were permitting people to come to. And so people were terrified that they were going to actually be sent back to Yemen and, and get stuck there. Um, and, you know, knowing what it's like been like in Yemen, people were absolutely terrified. So when um, the Muslim ban was announced, um, Yemeni American leaders started calling me and texting me and asking me, what does this mean for our community? What do we need to do? You know, what's going to happen to us, our family members? And so I asked them to pull for an emergency community meeting on Saturday night. And so we met about 50 
leaders from across the five boroughs came and met with me in Bay Ridge. Um, it was uh, about eight o'clock after a number of us had gone to JFK and stood in solidarity with everybody that was there. Um, and that was an incredible effort in itself. And so at this community meeting, we talked about the do's and the don'ts with the Muslim ban. And the first and more foremost, what I told them to do was to make sure that nobody with a green card was traveling either outside of the United States or trying to re-enter into the United States because we don't know the impact it was going to have on individuals. And so they were able to get the word out that night. But what, in addition to that, we also talked about doing um, community education for the community, specifically on the Muslim ban, so people knew and understand what it was. Interestingly enough, the community, um, there are those who are in social media, and we were able to get that information out to them. There's a page called Sabha al-Muqtarba, which has over 150,000 Yemeni Americans on it who get their news firsthand. But then you have thousands and thousands of Yemeni Americans or Yemeni immigrants who are not on social media, who don't have a computer even in their home, who are basically all bodega owners or working in bodegas, um, working 12 to 16 hour shifts, some of them six days a week, some of them seven days a week just to make a living to send money to their families. And so that segment of the community, we were really concerned about them not understanding what the ramifications are of the Muslim ban. And so what we did was we coordinated two Know Your Rights trainings, one in Brooklyn and one in the Bronx. The following evening, there was a gathering of Yemeni bodega owners who were basically getting together and talking about how this is impacting them. Um, and on Monday after Monday morning, I get a call at 11 a.m. from one of my colleagues who's also a, a merchant. And he said to me, Debbie, you know, I met with a bunch of Yemeni bodega owners yesterday. Everybody's devastated. Everyone has a story. And um, and uh, the conversation was they want to do a strike. I said to him, my God, that's a brilliant idea. But can you actually can you really make a dent in this? And he said, well, we could try. I said, you know, from what I understand, there are about three to 5,000 bodega, Yemeni bodegas across the five boroughs. Can you, can you get 1,000 to commit to closing? He said, well, we could try. I said, well, I can't accept from you we could try. I want to hear you say, yes, we can. Where, what do you want to do? Where do you, what do you want to do once you guys close? And he said, well, we were thinking to, you know, get a banquet hall and then just get together and like have a town hall. I said, okay, well, who's going to know you close? He said, our, our, you know, our customers. I said, well, we don't want just your customers to know this. We want the world to know this. I don't think the town hall at a banquet is a good idea. You need to be out in the street. Close your stores and, and come out for a rally. When do you want to do this? So he said to me, Thursday. I said, are you kidding me? Thursday? That's four <laughs> days away. That's not even enough time to get a, a permit. Let me call Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, who is a dear friend of mine, um, and just simply make a case to him. The Brooklyn Borough Hall area is actually the first place that Yemeni Americans descended to when they arrived from Yemen. It was what they call Barahol. It was, if you go anywhere, anywhere in the United States or even in Yemen and you have a conversation with people about where you live in New York, 
no matter what you say to them, when you say the word Badajoz, everybody just knows where that is. It's like the Mecca of New York. <laughs> and so I, um, I explained to, I called up Eric and I said, Eric, you know, something very important has come up and I need your help here. The Yemeni American community wants to shut down bodegas, the bodega owners, and they want to hold a rally. And there's no place better than Brooklyn Borough Hall. And I explained to him the history of how Yemeni Americans first migrated to Brooklyn, lived in that area, opened up restaurants, um, opened up stores. My family alone opened up eight restaurants only five blocks away wow. from Brooklyn Borough Hall. Can you talk about bodegas and what they mean to New York? So a bodega is a small grocery store that basically sells cigarettes, milk, bread, all the you know things that you need. They're usually located in residential areas. There are probably about 12,000 bodegas in New York City. They're not only run by Yemenis, but they're also run by um, Dominicans who actually were the first ones to actually own bodegas. After the coverage of the bodega strike, um, there was this right-wing group on, um, on the internet that basically covered it. And they're like, you know, there were these people out in New York and they came out and they were protesting against, you know, Trump. Well, you know, we want the Muslim ban. And I don't even know what this bodega is all about. <laughs> you know, what well, this bodega is. And I'm like, just laughing. I wish he knew what, what he was talking about. And they are having uh, previously been a New Yorker. They are, uh, they have a particular role in a community or even a block that I don't think if you live elsewhere in the country and if you're not in a really dense city, you necessarily have that connection with your grocer. There are relationships built between them and their customers. You know, people know have known them for years and years. When we were talking about, you know, the time for them to close, you know, a, a whole shift, um, I said to them, let's do it from 8, 8 a.m., you know, to 8 p.m., and their response to me was, we would do it, but we also want to keep in mind the very people that we serve every day. People rely on us for their coffee, for their paper, um, and children who are going to school rely on us for their snack, and we just can't disrupt their morning. So they closed at noon? They closed from noon till 8 p.m. And even eight hours must have represented significant economic impact. Oh, absolutely. Um, in the weeks after the bodega strike, I was able to get some of the bodega owners just to do a rough estimate of what the economic um, loss was. And um, they all concurred that it was a million dollars in revenue. I, I do remember seeing a bodega windows store closed, my wife is detained at JFK. There were some very personal yeah, messages on yeah. store windows. And they were absolutely stories that were very, very personal. Zaid, um, Abdul Ghani, and uh, Abdul Mabariz, um, they did a phone tree. And when I say a phone tree is that they contacted people in the five boroughs who are influential business owners and said to them, look, this is this is what we want to do. We need to make our voices heard. We need to make sure that we are not living in the shadows. And we refuse to accept any ban against us and our community and our families. 
And so, um, so within the five boroughs, they were able to contact people who then contacted business owners in those various um, boroughs to basically make the commitment to close. They created a flyer and I said to them, I said, your job is to create a flyer that you feel represents you and, and what we need, the message that we need to be sent out. And so um, I asked them, send me the flyer. They're like, okay, well, we're waiting for it. And I was like, what do you mean you're waiting for it? Where is this guy that you're waiting for? They're like, he's in Yemen. And right now he's asleep, but he'll be up in a couple of hours. And the irony you should have seen, I was like going crazy. I was like, why of all places? And they're like, no, he really wanted to. People even in Yemen are standing in solidarity with us. It was funny because the borough president asked me, how many people do you think you'll turn out? And I said, oh, probably 2,000. By 3 p.m., there was already a 1,000 people that were actually there. Wow. It was incredible, absolutely incredible. So they closed at 12 o'clock, and then they made their way over by 12.30. And when the borough hall called me and said, there are people out here, did you give them the wrong time? I said, no, no, <laughs> they're supposed to be there at 4.30. So um, I sent my husband and I said, you need to go and find out what's going on. Why are they there? And so he went over and he spoke to them. And he basically said, why are you here? They're like, we wanted to get a head start. He's like, but it's 430. And he's like, don't worry. We're going to be here. We're not going anywhere. He's like, well, why don't you go to the mosque? Why don't you go to Starbucks? It's very cold. And it was a very cold day that day. It was just incredible to see the number of people that came out. Was it social media that got the owners of the bodegas organized? Or was it word of mouth and calling each other on the phone? Um, I firmly believe that it was the the word of mouth, um, the phone tree, and basically everybody hearing one another tell a compelling story why they were going to come out. Um, You know, we got the approval on Tuesday night um, to use Brooklyn Borough Hall. And by Wednesday morning, the flyers were complete and ready for distribution. And at that point, we basically said, okay, we need to have a Facebook page. And so um, at that point, I contacted Wadad um, Hassan, who actually works at the Muslim Community Network. Uh, she created the page and put up the press release, which I spent the whole night um, with Rethink Media, a nonprofit organization that works with Muslim individuals, activists, and organizations on, on public relations. And so we developed the, the press release. We posted it up on that Facebook page. And um, and there were tons of uh, requests being made. And Wadad added uh, Rabia and Summer Nasser and another gentleman, Mohammed Sabri, onto the page. And it was just really incredible to see how many people, once they heard about it, um, it just became, uh, you know, it went viral. It went really viral. Um, but really, the, the people that came out that day, Chris, were the bodega owners who are in those stores, you know, 16 hours a day, who found it to be compelling to come stand outside with their fellow brothers, um, who basically made the commitment. There were several stores that had never closed their doors. They were 24-7 stores. And because of this, when they tried to go lock their locks in their doors, the locks fell apart. They literally had to go to the hardware store and buy locks and replace them in order to be able to come and participate. In the beginning conversations, the organizers were nervous that there were going to be some people who were hesitant to come out publicly. 
But when people heard about this noble cause and seeing that it was so important to take a political and public stand, you would not believe how many people rose to the occasion and wanted their stories to be told um, and wanted you know, to have media come to their stores. Um, we had attempted to actually create a list of all the bodegas that closed and we were not successful because people were hesitant of giving their addresses and creating a database of Yemeni bodegas for the bodega strike. Um, and so reporters were asking us, and we said to them, we have to respect their right. They're, they're feeling, you know, uh, intimidated. They are afraid, you know, if we put this list together and it's public, you know, and it falls into the government's hands. There are just too many variables, and we don't want to put anybody um, in any harm's way. And we are working with them. We're meeting them where they are and working with them to make sure that their voices are amplified. One of the images that struck me was all the American flags waving as if to say, this is the real vision and image of America. That was the most incredible sight, the sea of flags. Um, Chris, I can't begin to tell you, there were people that were hanging off the fringes of the flags in Borough Hall that were not even ours. They were they were basically owned by Brooklyn Borough Hall. But it was incredible to see people coming with flags. And interestingly enough, the night before, um, the organizers and the people that we had um, monitoring the Facebook page for us had a a conference call just to, you know, make sure that we're all on the same page. And, um, and one of the one of the sisters basically was adamant about not having flags, someone had said, you know what, let's buy flags, and let's give them out. And there was this huge debate on the phone about whether there should be flags or not, and the whole thing of being nationalistic and and all this stuff. And at that point, I just simply said, you know what, if people come with flags, we have to respect them. It's their right. We can't tell them whether they can or they can't. And, um, you know, as someone who actually comes from a military family, I have a lot of mixed emotions about about the flag. You know, I, I own up to the fact that my family has bled and sweat for this country um, through all the members of my family that have, you know, served in the military, and I'm proud of them. And, you know, the flag symbolizes that pride. Um, And I also respect, you know, people's right who feel like they don't want to, you know, wave flags or, you know, have a, a nationalistic view. There was a rally and a really big prayer. I wonder if you could talk about that. Sure. So, the um, the bodega strike culminated with the rally, and the rally was to make sure that the voices of the very impacted people um, were projected that night. We had about um, 12 people from the Yemeni American community who told their stories and the impact that the ban has had on them. Um, and then we also had clergy. Um, we had Amnesty International that basically called me the day before and said, we want to come, we want to stand with you. The Working Families Party called me, said, we want to come stand with you. Um, some police reform groups, the New York Immigration Coalition. It was just incredible to see the outpouring support of people um, saying, we want to come and stand with you. And so, you know, we, we invited everybody. And what was even more astonishing was a number of elected officials, Chris, that just dropped everything once they saw the coverage. 
we were aware of about two or three that were planning to come, but we literally had close to 30 elected officials um, from council people, assembly, senate. Um, it was just really, really incredible to see the outpouring support that day. And what has been the, the impact of the strike in the community since then? The men who were merchants who basically came up with the idea realized that there there is this, you know, unheard voice of the Yemeni American community and realized that it needs to be mobilized. What's life like for you? How do you run your business? You know, are your needs being met? Are you know, when you call the police, they come? Um, you know, are you being harassed by any of the city agencies? And just it was so interesting to hear their stories and struggles. And then at that point, I turned around to the the brothers that organize a bodega strike. And I said to them, I said, you know, this is a moment right now that you must seize and you must create some kind of organization that will unify these people and become a conduit to organize them and mobilize them and other issues that impact them. And so what's come um, of it is actually the establishment of the Yemeni American Merchants Association which is uh, an educational advocacy organization educating the bodega owners and merchants who may not be bodega owners, as well as help advocate for their rights um, with city agencies. And so uh, the organization was incorporated about two months ago. What they did was actually hold on April 23rd an immigration session. We had over 250 people who showed up that Sunday afternoon for this. And the table that was the most visited was the immigration table with the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee. People have so many issues with, you know, TPS, um, with visas, you know, and their families still being stuck that they just felt, you know, they needed that help. And we were really happy to have been able to do that. You know, the Emmy American community is a very unique community, Chris. They've been around, I would say, for the most part, for the last 70 to 80 years. Um, many of them actually arrived, um, you know, during the, the third uh, third wave of, uh, of immigration to the United States in, in the 60s. That's when my father came um, and many other of his family members. Um, but they're a very proud people and, you know, proud in, in their heritage and who they are. Um, they are not people who will take handouts. They will work very hard, no matter how much you pay them, to be able to make ends meet and to support their families. Um, and what's interesting, when they all migrated to this country is that they brought the rich culture that they came with, um, you know, and the Yemeni community is very, very conservative in its, in its, um, you know, in its way of um, observance uh, of Islam. And what I mean by that is that you would not necessarily see Yemeni American men and women working side by side. Um, you know, and this is not something that is um, indicative of Islam, but this is more of a cultural practice. But when we look at the Yemeni American community and when they first migrated here, they were stagnant. You know, they, they, they really stayed at that level. And it was just, you know, within the last 30 years that women started actually going to school, 
um, you know, becoming career oriented. And it was really interesting at the bodega strike, people kept saying, well, where are the women? Why aren't, you know, you know, why aren't they here? You know, and so a couple of pieces, people said, well, they're on the stage, because half of the speakers were actually women. Because it was something really important that I felt as well as the organizers felt in doing. But when then that people ask, well, you know, are there women bodega owners? And the question, the, the answer to that is no, because, um, you know, they're professionals. You know, the men have chosen to take this field. Um, bodega owners have daughters. They've, you know, encouraged them to go to school. And, and now they're, they're your bankers. They're your nurses. They're your, you know, lawyers. They're, it's really fascinating to see, you know, how we've progressed. And, The one thing that, you know, continues to be, um, you know, uh, an impediment, um, which we're working really hard, um, is to actually break this cultural barrier that exists and really get our community to the next level of understanding that the only way we're going to change the plight of our community um, in New York City and the United States is by, you know, Yemeni American women and men working together. The ban has been challenged in the courts. Several judges in courts have um, stopped it from going into effect, but Trump is planning to take this to the Supreme Court. Plenty of risk still has to be navigated. Absolutely. Um, One of your day jobs is to build bridges through cross-cultural education. Uh, On a personal note, how has New York City felt to you um, since the Trump inauguration, uh, you know everything that the this current administration, the Trump administration, does has ripple effects. Um, I want to say that New York is one of the most fascinating places to live because people are extremely tolerant um, and you know and and value that diversity um, because this city the, that's what it's known all along. Um, and so, you know, we've had our challenges and, you know, the challenges that we've had as a city is because of the anti-Muslim rhetoric that has been spewed, um, whether it's, you know, through the presidential race that we, you know, that we all experienced or the, you know, the anti-Muslim fear mongering taking place by fringe right wing groups that, ha- you know, like Act for America. And so, you know, two summers ago, we lost an imam and his assistant who were shot. Um, and then a month later in Queens, and then a month later, a woman who was stabbed at 9 p.m. Um, while she was walking home with her husband after closing their business. Um, and so, you know, the incidents, the hate crime incidents are, are there and they're happening. But one of the things that is really incredible is the way that our interfaith allies have responded to this moment, standing up, you know, with us um, and for us. Um, New York City is a sanctuary city. We're so grateful um, that we are a sanctuary city. Um, And so that in itself, you know, gives us a lot of hope. One thing that just happened recently on June 10th, the Act for America was doing all of these uh, rallies across the country in 23 cities. Um, And they came to New York City and they only rummaged up like maybe 40, 50 people. But they had no idea that they were messing with New York City folks. So there were like four or five 
rallies countering them. And the one that was my favorite was the one uh, NYC Loves Muslims. And it was a beautiful showing of support that was majority of Christians and Jews and people of no faith saying, no, not in our city. You're not going to come hate monger. Um, But the biggest um, thing that I was just um, really enthralled about was two organizations within less than a week deciding to organize an iftar saying, you know what, we are going to host our Muslim neighbors to break fast in celebration of religious freedom and solidarity. And so within a week's time, they raised $10,000. They organized the iftar, which they asked my organization, the Muslim Community Network, to partner with them and help them navigate the system of how to make sure it's a culturally competent iftar and to also help do outreach within the Muslim community to make sure Muslims knew about this iftar. They had over 300 people who showed up for this iftar. It was one of the most beautiful gatherings you could possibly want to be at. And the message that was sent was through faith clergy of every faith background, simply saying, you're our neighbors, we love you, we respect you, and we have your back. I have been struck by the interfaith, multiracial, cross-cultural coalition building that's happening since Trump came into office in response um, to what he's done. That said, I think that all of our communities um, are learning how to build constructive coalitions. Yeah, oh, I absolutely agree in, in, in that regard. I think one thing that, that the Trump administration and even the Trump campaign did for our country, um, Chris, was actually uh, coalesce all of these marginalized groups. And, you know, the, the, the one factor that they all have in common is that they have been portrayed as, you know, social ills that do not belong here. And so because of that, all of these groups really came together pre, um, you know, election um, and post election and have been really aggressively working collectively with one another. And now more than ever, feeling a sense of social responsibility um, to work with one another. I mean, like tomorrow, tomorrow is World uh, Day of Refuge, um, where organizations of every background are coming together um, to commemorate this day. Um, and one of the great things that's happening is, you know, there was going to be a niftar. So at a DAG summer halt in near, um, near the UN, um, is that there was going to be a program from 630. And then it's going to end with a breakfast, you know, to, to make sure that it's inclusive of Muslims who are fasting. And so it's just really incredible to see the thoughtfulness um, that is taking place with all of the organizing, you know, that's taking place in the city during this month and making sure that everybody is included and everybody's needs are being met. What can people who are not at risk, uh, either because of immigration status or any other kinds of privilege, what can people do uh, to put themselves out there in solidarity? Um, I think, you know, the, the biggest message that I keep telling people is just show up show up. When you hear about, you know, a rally or a visual, show up. Um, If you read something in the paper that you are not happy with, write a letter to the editor, write op-eds, blog, you know, post on social media. Um, I mean, yesterday, a a 17-year-old was killed in, um, in, in, in Sterling, Virginia. 
Um, she and her friends went to uh, IHOP, you know, to get a meal before, you know, the the time of starting the fast. And a motorist stopped and uh, came out swinging a bat. He hit the young girl. Her friends were actually fortunate to be able to flee. But he took her body um, and then did whatever with it. And they found it, you know, 3 p.m. yesterday afternoon. Um, it's shook up the community. It's devastated the community. Um, the Fairfax um, Police Department is not ruling it yet as a hate crime. We personally think it is because all of these children were identifiable with the clothing that they were wearing. Um, but what you know, what has come of this, you know, in the last 24 hours is the amount of social media that has been invested in this situation is just really incredible. And so people really need to be on Facebook, need to be on Twitter just to get their news and to stand in solidarity and supportive communities that are under attack. Do you think that even if Donald Trump left office tomorrow, that in some sense the damage has been done the way he has stoked anti-Muslim sentiment and, for that matter, all other kinds of sentiment? I think the damage has been done. Um, And I think that it began, you know, with the presidential um, race that took place and, you know, his radio silence on issues that have happened, you know, incidents that have happened um, since he's been in office and just turning a blind eye to it. Um, I think that what he's done is provide um, people who've had, you know, these racist notions about Muslims, African Americans, LGBTQ women, immigrants, Mexicans. Um, what he's done is given them political license to verbalize, you know, their racist um, rhetoric. And so now what we are seeing is people acting out. It was already there. It was always there. But it was not normal to say it out loud, especially Mm -hmm. if you were a candidate for Mm -hmm. the presidency. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what we're seeing, is that he has legitimized that rhetoric for people to be able to say it and go unchecked, unfortunately. You spoke at the Democratic National Convention. Uh, You wrote an article also on Time, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, Time magazine about Islamophobia Mm -hmm. that followed uh, Mr. and Mrs. Khan's appearance. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when when um, when I saw the attacks that were launched um, on Mr. and Mrs. Khan, I was absolutely outraged. Um, I felt their pain, um, though, you know, my, I'm fortunate that my family has not lost anyone who served in the military. But being um, an individual who has military members as family members, I felt a sense of responsibility to voice my concerns um, and outrage um, and defend, you know, not only the cons, but all the men and women who are Muslim Americans who serve our country and how important it is to respect them um, and their service, in addition to all the Gold Star families and, and families in general whose, whose family members have served our country who don't, um, you know, who don't share the views of President Trump. Well, Dr. Almantasser, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to sit down and share with us the story of the bodega strike and everything you've been working on since then. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you, Chris. 
That does it for this episode of The Resistors. Thanks for listening, and thanks so much to Dr. Debbie Almentasser and all the organizers of the Yemeni Bodega Strike. You can also listen to more episodes of The Resistors on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you know someone who should be a guest on a future episode, connect with us at theresistors.co.